0: Part One Conquer Your Demons Chapter One A Fearless Battle Acknowledging the Enemy I remember a time in my life when I lived in total fear. I was unsure of myself and my reality. I functioned in fear of my father, my future, and especially God. I feared being criticized, unseen, unloved, marginalized, and ridiculed, I worried and obsessed about failure, worthlessness, aloneness, disappointment, death, parenting my own children the way my father parented, and getting what I wanted and needed. I was anxious and terrified. I grew so sick of it. Are you in a season or a place of fear and anxiety, dear one? Does fear of what lies ahead of the future hold you back from throwing yourself completely into the arms of God? At the time, I was a waitress at an upscale restaurant. The owners were tyrannical. One of them watched porn every shift in the office with the sound turned up and the television aimed toward the doorway. Also the executive chef, he roared into our faces with a drill sergeant's spit and rage when any dish returned from the dining room to the kitchen. Then he docked our hourly pay for the amount of the entree. His wife skimmed the top from our credit card tips to the tune of hundreds of dollars a night and fired on the spot the two people I ever knew to question her lies, shrieking at the backs of their heads as they hurried out the door. Several times I discovered their young daughter cowering under clothed banquet tables after a parental onslaught. The maitre d' was a bright spot, I thought at the time, because he lived in the loft above the restaurant and threw wild parties for the staff and their friends with free booze and anything else anyone wanted. I experimented around and didn't make it home a couple of nights. We weren't allowed to smoke while on the clock, but he would let us sneak up the spiral staircase to his apartment, out the back door into the alley, or into the empty ballrooms, as long as we promised not to rat him out if we got caught. The night the owner caught me smoking in a darkened ballroom and grabbed me, I thought he was going to hurt me, and I was terrified of just what his porn-soaked brain might provoke him to do. To this day, I'm not sure how I escaped." We all hated the restaurant's owners, and because of my past with my father, I was terrified of the chef. I followed the rules to a T from that night on, mostly, except for the night a co-worker and I climbed up to the roof of the Black Angus Pub in the wee hours after midnight and spray-painted the G out of the name on the restaurant sign. My mom finally kicked me out of the house for repeatedly breaking curfew. I knew I needed to quit that job, but now I needed the money more than ever, and I could no longer afford to. Anyway, I liked the work despite the rabid owners, and the money was spectacular, especially for a teenager. I was also reluctant to give up the parties and other fun, despite the fact that I was still attending church regularly on my own. As time went on, the partying and other sin I was involved in noodled my conscience, and I grew latently miserable at the constant inner conflict. But I couldn't see a future that wasn't the status quo. How would I support myself without that job? If I went all in with God, I'd have to give up all the fun I was having, even my boyfriend. I'd be bored. I'd be alone. And how could I find something elsewhere that made that much money? The intelligent part of me wanted to ask God for help, but emotionally I was too scared. I knew my problems were my own fault and that I deserved where I was. The possible new seemed so unimaginable that I decided to stick with the miserable present. That was my modus operandi in every area of my life for years. Perhaps one of the saddest realities in the church today is the number of Christians who live every day with this type of paralyzing anxiety and fear. While desperately desiring to serve God fully, they're simply unable to move past some overwhelming obstacle. Sometimes the impediment is unidentified, but it's present like a huge weight on the chest that prevents a full deep breath. Even seasoned Christians struggle with the temptation to fear, often because of the severity of their suffering or circumstances. Is this you, dear one? Doesn't fear trap us in a kind of agony of aimlessness coupled with a dominant self-interest? Surrounded and bombarded with data and information on every imaginable topic, it seems we've come to consider our depression, anxieties, and fears as issues of heredity, chemistry, biology, culture, psychology, geography, or modernity, but never as spirit. In agreement with Popes Paul VI and John Paul II, Pope Francis said, Maybe Satan's greatest achievement in these times has been to make us believe that he does not exist and that all can be fixed on a purely human level. Yet spirit is real. In fact, spirit is the basis of all reality. Are we part human, part animal? Are we simply human animals, as science tells us? If so, what role does human spirit play then in our daily existence? Try thinking about your own spirit in terms of its moral, fluid, non-static, immeasurable existence. Close your eyes and imagine yourself without your body. What does your soul look like? Who are you? Here's another way to look at it. Right this minute, today, can you pinpoint how holy you are? Imagine a scale of 1 to 100%. Isn't our degree of holiness in a constant state of movement toward one direction or the other? The realm of the spirit is changeable, intangible, and scientifically unquantifiable, Yet it is just as real and in some ways even more important than the physical realm, for it's the realm of the intellect and the will that determines both our actions and our eternal destiny. Fear is rooted in the spiritual realm. We're about to study the cosmic role that every soul occupies in time and history. But before we do, we'd better establish this firm foundation. At its deepest root, fear is a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy. Here's a promise. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy one seven. I hope you'll claim this as your own promise from God, write it on a post-it note and put it somewhere conspicuous, and then imprint it in permanent marker on the wall of your soul. Depending on which translation of the Bible you use, the word timidity might also be rendered cowardice or fear. I like fear best. This verse is a promise. The spirit of fear does not come from God, beloved. Fear is not from God, ever. By fear, I don't mean the necessary rational reaction to actual danger or the simple emotion. And I don't mean the fear of the Lord spoken of in the Bible as a gift of the Holy Spirit, which we will explore later. I mean abiding, paralyzing, oppressive fright and anxiety about a perceived future and its imagined threats. This is the working definition of the word that we will use throughout the book. Isn't my imagination without wisdom a vicious tyrant? If, as Scripture tells us, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control, then where does fear come from? The Bible says, first and foremost, oppressive fear is a matter of spiritual warfare. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6:12. Fear comes from the enemy, my enemy, your enemy, and God's enemy. In affirming the spiritual basis of my fear, I'm not blaming myself for struggling with it. I'm simply acknowledging that I am somehow being manipulated. As St. Anthony said, fear not. "'Tis but an artifice of the evil one to distract you. What am I being distracted from? What am I really afraid of? If we cannot or will not acknowledge the reality of a spiritual battle and a spiritual enemy, we will be continually manipulated, paralyzed, and overcome by terrors. We will be spiritually sick, ineffective, and impotent. Our lives will be consumed in futility and fear." See Psalm seventy-eight thirty-three. Perhaps you find the idea of hell or the devil silly, both just superstitious beliefs of the past that have no validity in our day of science, psychology, and medicine. Maybe you think God is just as nice and polite as everybody else you know, and would never be so poorly mannered as to consign anyone to hell. Possibly you associate the wrath of God with an error in taste or a bit of folklore at odds with modern progress and faith. But heed the words of St. John Paul II, who asserted that he who does not believe in the devil does not believe in the gospel. The devil's existence is a matter of infallible revelation. Jesus himself taught the reality of a personal evil enemy and left us with a liberation prayer in the Our Father. Although almost always translated as deliver us from evil, that line literally means deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from the person of Satan. Pope Francis reminds us that man's life on earth is warfare. St. John Paul II encourages us to take the challenge seriously. Spiritual combat, he says, is another element of life which needs to be taught anew and proposed once more to all Christians today. It is a secret and interior art, an invisible struggle in which we engage every day against the temptations, the evil suggestions that the demon tries to plant in our hearts. Some people worrying that studying evil will bring it against us. But the enemy is already at work in our lives, whether we know or acknowledge it or not. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 He surreptitiously plants evil seeds in our lives that choke out virtue if left to germinate. Matthew 13.25 Understanding and actively resisting the enemy is absolutely imperative if we are to resist being led eternally away from God through fear, ignorance, or apathy. The enemy, however, is both in us and outside of us. As St. Augustine said, never fight evil as though it were something that arose totally outside yourself. I must know myself and the enemy of love in order to conquer fear. Sun Tzu was a Chinese military general, strategist, and philosopher, traditionally credited as the author of The Art of War, an important ancient treatise on military tactics used by the CIA and U.S. military academies. Sun Tzu said the primary strategy in any battle is to know one's enemy. He wrote, If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. The Bible says our enemy is the devil— 1 Peter 5, eight An evil, objective reality according to the church. Catechism 3.28. Whatever the less discerning theologians may say, the devil, as far as Christian belief is concerned, is a puzzling but real, personal, and not merely symbolic presence. He is a powerful reality, a baneful superhuman freedom directed against God's freedom, warned Pope Benedict XVI. Scripture itself does not furnish systematic or comprehensive information regarding the exact nature of this impressive enemy. Most of what we know about Satan and demons from scripture is scattered and sometimes simply hinted at throughout the Bible, but 2000 years of patristic and theological church history helps clarify what is there. Designated in various ways that we'll explore in a later chapter, evil is pure angelic spirit, and so it is immortal, Luke 20:36, but not eternal. Because angels are created beings. Angel is the name of their office, not of their nature, stated St. Augustine. The word angel means messenger, an indication of their function, according to the Catechism. Their nature is spirit. Because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine. The fallen angels retain their created abilities, but use them against us rather than to help us. Like angels, the human soul is spirit. Spirit. But the human soul does not become angelic after death when it's separated from the body. The human person was created to be a fusion of body and soul. The human spirit is individual and personal, ordained to freely will, think, emote, desire, imagine, remember, and act by way of the physical senses. Humans seem to have been created as the middle ground between what is pure spirit, angels, and what is pure flesh, animals. The separation of the body and soul that occurs at death, then, is an unnatural and temporary state, a condition that as Christians we believe will one day be corrected and restored to an even more glorious state through the redemptive work of Christ at the resurrection of the body we proclaim in our creed. Those in hell will be resurrected to eternal suffering in the body as well as the soul. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, angelic power is superior to human power in its abilities because it is exclusively spirit, Without any need for a body. Angels freely think, will, emote, act, are self aware, exercise power, and are immortal, indestructible, and relational, all without the use of the tool, the flesh, we humans operate in. Catechism 330. The most gifted writer could never do justice to the magnificent beauty, eclipsing intelligence, and surpassing power of an angel. Every biblical person who saw one became terrified at their shocking magnificence. And angels are actually the lowest order in rank of the pure spirits. The Bible tells us the ascending ranks are archangels, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones, cherubim, and seraphim. Possibly an archangel is as far above an angel in perfections as an angel is above man. Because angels are pure spirit, they are not bound by the physical laws that govern our spatial universe of time and matter. Catechism 330. Therefore, they possess the inherent ability to produce and manipulate phenomena in our sensory fields of perception and behavior, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, and they use the minefield of our accumulated sensory data, especially visual sensory data, to tempt us. Fallen or evil angels have the skill, intelligence, and desire to attract human imagination to the fantastic, first as a distraction and ultimately as the door to more serious evil and danger. We see this temptation illustrated in the fascination with rebuking Satan at every turn, where obsession with demonic activity can prevent our entertaining the possibility that sin, our own or someone else's, may be responsible for our circumstances. At the other end of the spectrum, Ouija boards, tarot cards, psychics, mediums, and the paranormal distract us, darken spiritual clarity, and lead us into more grave sin— Because these activities are attempts to bypass God in knowing what we cannot otherwise naturally know, they are rebellion against providence. Falsely presented as harmless experimenting, just another experience one should try, or as spiritually good and righteous, all such practices halt spiritual progress and ultimately cause spiritual death. Although they seem fantastic and may be mythical, angels are as real as the air we breathe. They are with us this very moment. Your guardian angel has been with you, tirelessly helping and guiding you since birth. Matthew 18.10 You've got an angel right there next to you, just for you, right now. The number of angels is unknown, but Daniel says a thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel 7.10 And the number of demons and fallen angels is legion. Mark 5.9 They have existed since the dawn of creation and have the benefit of millennia of experience with humanity. They are a formidable enemy. The great spiritualist Father John Harden said, The devil is not one person. The devil is an organized battalion of malice who has formed a mystical body of Satan on earth to mimic and oppose the mystical body of Christ, the church militant. Padre Pio said their number is more than all of the men who have ever lived on the earth since Adam, so numerous that if we could see them, they would block out the sun. However, Pope Benedict XVI assures us that Satan's power is severely restricted. He is not a second God. God has limited the devil as in chains, and the angels that did not keep their position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal chains in the deepest darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jude 6 and Second 2 Peter 2.4 The errant angels were cast down to roam back and forth on the earth, Job 1.7. In their malice, they will tempt humankind until the final judgment. Furthermore, because God gave us unconditionally free will, Catechism 17.30, an evil spirit cannot produce in us something that is against our will or that was not already there, either actively or potentially, James 1.14. They do not know the secrets of God, do not have particular knowledge of people's hearts, and have no absolute foreknowledge of the future, although they can predict reasonably well based on the past. In fact, in the coming chapters, we will uncover how surprisingly limited Satan really is. For now, that providence should permit diabolical activity is a great mystery. But we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight, 28. And that in the words of St. Augustine, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to suffer no evil to exist. Angels are the earliest works of God's creation known to us. We know they must have been created on or before the first day of creation, because Job indicates that the angels were eyewitnesses to the creation of the universe. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. Job 38, 4 and 7. Morning stars and sons of God are literary terms for angels and have been interpreted so since the Septuagint. God has left the reason for the fallen angels' revolt mostly a mystery, but many theologians have argued that it involved blasphemy against the unique union of divinity with humanity in Christ. According to this premise, God gave the angels a preview of Jesus incarnate as the savior of the human race and commanded that they adore him, Jesus in all his human suffering, weakness, limitation, and humiliation. The thinking goes that Lucifer, among the most gifted of all the angels, wanted union and worship privileges for himself, but without humility. A thing cannot be one with another if the two are not alike, after all. And envy is the parody of aspiration. Conscious of angels' supreme elevation, dignity, beauty, and magnificence above humans, Lucifer took offense and rebelled against worshiping or submitting to the lowly God-man Jesus. The book of Ezekiel laments, You were the signet or seal of perfection— "...full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, till iniquity was found in you." Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve and 15. Hell, voluntary separation from God, began. According to Scripture and church tradition, the devil and other demons are the fallen angels who turned away from God, saying, We will not serve. Catechism 391. Pope Francis said, The devil is a being that opted not to accept the plan of God. The masterpiece of the Lord is man. Some angels did not accept it, and they rebelled. The devil is one of them. Can you see, then, why the elevation of what is comparatively lowly human flesh in Christ and the coming resurrection and elevation of our own bodies above the angels seems to especially motivate Satan to tempt us to sin in ways that degrade the body as much as possible, especially sexual sin since it perverts the flesh's miraculous life-giving intention? Lucifer is another proper name for Satan that means light-bearer. We do not know God's original purpose in creating Lucifer. Speculative theology suggests that he may have been some sort of teacher whose role was the signet of perfection, meaning plan or pattern, Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve. But in his pride, he rejected the perfection of God's plan, placing himself in opposition to God and distorting his gifts, which are now twisted against us for evil rather than good. The passage from Ezekiel also suggests that before the fall he may have had the role and capacity to test mankind in order to lift up and promote spiritual growth. St. Bridget of Sweden agrees. Although the devil lost the dignity of his previous rank, he did not lose his knowledge which he possesses for the testing of the good and for his own confusion. We have established that angels were created with a supremely free will, unhindered by human limitation, and are therefore capable of love. Catechism 392. Because it is love that fits a spirit for the face-to-face sight of God and the eternal union with him that we call heaven, and because such love can only be proven through free and voluntary submission of the created will to him, the angels fell, fled, or were cast from his presence in heaven to the earth upon their rebellion. Satan was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 12.9 Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke ten eighteen, Later, after the sin of Adam, God would mysteriously give the more vulnerable human race a second chance through redemption. But there was no second chance for the fallen angels who, as Thomas Aquinas wrote in the Summa, know all things at once, just as in heaven our thoughts will not be fleeting, going and returning from one thing to another. But we shall survey all our knowledge at the same time by one glance." Without the limitation of a physical brain, the angels do not have to reason in steps. They have perfect intelligence and clarity, and they understood the consequences of sin to a degree that Adam never could have. There was no temptation as we normally understand it. So it is the irrevocable character of their choice and not a defect in the infinite divine mercy that makes the angels' sin unforgivable. There is no repentance for the angels after their fall, just as there is no repentance for men after death. Catechism 393. They are vigilant and hostile intelligences. Their wills are fixed, and there burns in them a complete, merciless, everlasting hatred for God and all men. This hatred is even more understandable in light of the Apostolic Father's belief that God created the human race to replace fallen angels and the reality that we will one day judge fallen angels as victors against them in this life through Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.3 4 says Pope Paul VI. By his incarnation, the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every man. Man is the only creature on earth that God has willed for his own sake to share his love, Catechism 356. So he gave us holy angels to help us reach the everlasting warmth of his bosom. But all the fallen angels' gifts, cleverness, and power are ceaselessly directed toward leading us into rebellion, alienation, sin, anguish, and despair, In order that we might eternally forfeit that love, they only desire to deceive and corrupt us into turning away from God so that we die in a poor spiritual state and become their eternal slaves and victims. Their hatred is the result of not only envying, but also hating the one who punishes them for their envy against him and those he loves. When did this awful rebellion occur? Again, God has not revealed it explicitly, but some theologians believe it occurred within moments of their creation. We speak in terms of time, but Thomas Aquinas says we must think in terms of angels' successive mental acts. The fathers see a hint of that conclusion in the mysterious first verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In verse 1, God creates. Then something awful happens, verse 2, before God fills creation with life. He then separates some sort of non-material light and darkness, verse 4. In this passage, Augustine and Aquinas see, in the darkness and the light, the good and evil angels. The actual roots and meanings of the language seem to indicate the same. The angelic rebellion, therefore, seems to have occurred almost immediately after their creation. Still, there's that pesky quotation from St. Augustine, Never fight evil as though it were something that arose totally outside yourself. The great military strategist Sun Tzu agrees, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. James one thirteen through 13-16 Dear one, are you living in fear or pervasive sin simply because you have neglected to even acknowledge the battle? Are you conquered by old habits over and over before you even realize it? Isn't that depressing? Has anyone ever won a protracted fight without a strategy? We'll talk a lot about specific strategies in the coming chapters, but I'd like to offer some helps right out of the chute since you're liable to experience what I call a pop quiz this week. Pop quizzes are God's invitation to practice what he's teaching. Although they usually involve some degree of difficulty and surprise, pop quizzes are not punitive or negative. They are a great help in our formation, and we should thank God for them. Be aware, since we are discussing temptation and spiritual warfare, that you will likely experience some sort of strong temptation in the coming days. Dear Lord, help us keep our eyes open so we aren't caught off guard. My first conscious, deliberate bout with spiritual battle Began in my early twenties one morning during prayer with this verse Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? So glorify God in your body. First Corinthians six, nineteen and twenty. I knew that the wages of sin is death, and that whatever destructive habit I allowed into my life and anything to which I was enslaved was ultimately a matter of sin. Romans six, twenty three. All I could think about was how I invited cancer into my body with cigarettes, smoking up the Holy Spirit in a cloud of sin. I was cut to the heart and quit immediately, only I never made it through the day. Have you ever impulsively made such a resolution only to fail immediately? I tried several times but couldn't kick the habit. I also knew I can't quit was simply an excuse. The truth is I can do any holy thing I sincerely put my will to because God says so. Be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter one sixteen and God would not tell me to do something that was impossible. So I got serious. I developed a strategy. I identified the schedule of my habit, how long it took for a cigarette to wear off, and the addiction to rear its ugly head. I researched quitting and nicotine addiction, the withdrawal symptoms, and how to mitigate them as much as possible. As an added incentive, I calculated how much money I spent annually on cigarettes and decided what I would buy to treat myself using that amount once I quit. I planned what I would do when my smoking buddies at work and my weekend drinking BFFs asked if I was coming with them, how I would respond, and what activity I would replace that usual smoking time with. I searched for the pattern in my temptation to smoke, what the mental and emotional triggers were aside from the physical addiction. I discovered it takes five days for the body to flush nicotine completely away. The rest is a mental battle. I imagined handing Jesus my last pack of cigarettes and giving him my smoking habit for good. In short, I circled and circled my habit in order to know it completely, to know myself. I didn't tell a soul in case I failed again, but I was ready to put my secret plan into place. I timed my quit day with the last cigarette in my last pack just before bed so I could sleep the first nine hours away. I wrote down Bible verses and kept them handy because I knew from experience that during those first couple of days, I would think about smoking on a minute-by-minute basis. The effort to resist the constant onslaught was agony. I repeated the following verses to myself over and over. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Where God closes a door, he always opens a window, as they say. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 For with God nothing will be impossible. Luke 137. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Isaiah forty one ten. As the intervals between temptations to smoke grew longer and longer, I sensed a growing strength and a sure victory. I discovered I also had to quit drinking any alcohol whatsoever because drinking made me want to smoke. I also took up a workout regime because sucking copious amounts of oxygen into my abused lungs felt so invigorating that I never wanted to smoke again. Ha! Three birds with one stone. I am a non-smoker today because I determined to obey, and in order to obey, I sought to know myself. That was a huge victory for me, and it made me confident for the grace of new ones. Has it ever occurred to you that there is a spiritual component to the battle against addiction? Do you dismiss the idea of spiritual warfare where you see only psychological, societal, political, or physical issues? St. John Paul II's reminder is so important. Spiritual combat is another element of life which needs to be taught anew and proposed once more to all Christians today. It is a secret and interior art, an invisible struggle in which we engage every day against the temptations, the evil suggestions that the demon tries to plant in our hearts. Pope Benedict XVI goes so far as to call us all common exorcists. The Christian can see that his task as exorcist must regain the importance it had when the faith was at the beginning. Of course, the word exorcism must not be understood here in its technical sense. It simply refers to the attitude of faith as a whole, which overcomes the world and casts out the prince of this world. In unity with Jesus and with fear of God, the devil is easily defeated. Dear one, the activity of Satan in our lives is yoked to sin. If we conquer sin, either our own or the sins committed against us, we conquer Satan. Isn't confronting sin the beginning of spiritual warfare then? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, because by the fear of the Lord a man avoids evil. Proverbs one seven and 16.6 Some say that respect rather than fright or fear of punishment is specifically meant here. But childhood wounds caused the two to be synonymous for me so that these verses were literally true. It was actual fear of punishment that was the start of my relationship with God because the dread consequences led me by steps out of sin and fear to wisdom, peace, and love. For those of us with father or mother wounds that tangled up love and fear for us from the beginning, these verses may ring literally true. Some of us have to learn how to fear our way to a proper understanding of love, and that's what this book is about but some lack proper respect at all. And it's evident in our apathy toward obedience. We say we believe God, trust God, and follow God. But more often than not, we neglect to seriously, deliberately, and determinedly attempt the elimination of sin in our lives or anything else he asks of us. It's too hard, we think. It's too big, we excuse, before we've even attempted a real strategy of obedience. And that, beloved, is the main strategy of Satan against the faithful, temptation to give up. Padre Pio said, Where there is no obedience, there is no virtue. Where there is no virtue, there is no good. Where there is no good, there is no love. Where there is no love, there is no God. And where there is no God, there is no paradise. Fear rules when love should have primary place in the Christian life. God forbid. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. Romans 8.15 we receive the Spirit of Sonship that makes us children of God from Christ, from His victory over sin and evil through His cross and resurrection, and He conveys it to us through baptism. Just as God brought light and order to the primeval waters of chaos and made them capable of sustaining physical life, the Holy Spirit rests on the waters of baptism as the generator of spiritual life. John 1, 33. The sea encompasses all the dim origins of life, the early Church Fathers say, elevating those ancient natural waters, even in their shapelessness, disorganization, and gloominess, to a lofty state as the seat of the hovering Holy Spirit and the first worthy vehicle of His life-generating action. How much more powerful, then, is the spiritual life generated through Him in baptism? Water is a powerful scriptural instrument and symbol of spiritual life and vitality, such that the Easter liturgy is replete with biblical references to the freshness and vigor of the element as the agent of salvation and sanctification. Exorcists say that during exorcism, demons behave in ways that show they are defined and bound by the Catholic religious system. Did you know the rite of baptism contains a mini-exorcism? Did you also know that the blessing of the water in the font also contains a mini-exorcism so that it becomes holy water? Through baptism, we have access to all the power and authority and privileges of Christ himself. Baptism into Christ is the basis of all true authority and the source of all spiritual strength. After that, we can be cleansed through sacramental confession said by actual exorcists in the church to be more powerful than a ritual exorcism. They tell us from experience that demons know all of our unconfessed sins, but whatever is confessed in the Catholic sacrament of penance is unknowable by demons at all. All in between throughout our journey back to God from whose heart we were born, we are sanctified and cleansed by the washing of water by the word of Christ. Ephesians 5.26 Do not fear, Padre Pio comforts. Jesus is more powerful than all hell. At the invocation of his name, every knee in heaven, on earth and in hell, must bend before Jesus. This is a consolation for the good and terror for the evil. We need never fear the fallen angels because baptism has washed and purified us of all sin and all eternal punishment for sin. Nothing remains to prevent our entry into heaven, not Adam's sin, not personal sin, and not the eternal consequences of sin. All that's left is to wrestle with suffering, illness, death, frailty, and the tendency to sin, but none of that can harm those who do not consent to temptation to sin or despair, but resist through the graces of Christ. Catechism 12, 63, and 64. I have my guardian angel, a church founded by Christ, the sacraments he instituted, and the full power of the scriptures all meant to help me resist and to save me from the influence of all the devils of hell. Because of all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf, Satan no longer has any legitimate claim on us as children of light, none whatsoever. Sin is not a design flaw, a development error, A psychological weakness, a mistake or an accident, dear one, sin is a choice. And it will trap you in fear, anxiety, and depression and ultimately destroy you. St. Paul says you never have to commit a single sin again unless you choose to. Think about this for a moment. If you could finally be forever free of the habits that regularly leave you in a puddle of defeat, fear, guilt, and shame, wouldn't you want to? Through his glorious grace, Jesus has given us the power and authority to stop sinning. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6, 12, and 14. Please listen to that sentence again. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Incredible. Incredible. Yet Bishop Renato Bicardo says we are not asked to have shining armor to overcome Goliath, but simply to know how to choose a few smooth stones, the right ones, with the wisdom and courage of David. What are the few smooth stones, the right ones? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, and that very sword proceeds from the mouth of Christ, Revelation 1.16. From Genesis to Revelation, God speaks and it happens. He created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 His power has word. His word has power. His word is never empty. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I intend and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55.11 The breath, meaning spirit, of his mouth is the only weapon strong enough to destroy the lawless one. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 One lifelong exorcist said that preaching and teaching the Word of God is even more powerful than confession or exorcism because the faith sprouts from the Word of God. See Romans 10.17 You may have grown annoyed by all the passages of Scripture with which I peppered this chapter and indeed the remainder of the book, but I am not sorry. They are your smooth stones." Choose the ones that seem most useful to you and keep them close. We often perish and are overcome because we don't know how to fight better. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, Hosea 4, 6. Did you know that the scriptures are the only offensive weapon the Bible explicitly prescribes in the battle against Satan? I intend to arm you to the hilt with verses until you can murmur them in your sleep, until they spring readily to mind in the midst of your battles. The sacraments and saints are some of the most powerful weapons in the spiritual arsenal, and we will talk about why in detail in the coming chapters. But they are only half the prescription. For this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. Catechism 103. The sacraments are available only once a week or once a day for most of us. What do we do in between? Doesn't the battle sometimes rage from second to second? We need the sword of the Lord to help us in the trenches when the enemy surrounds us and his shells are exploding everywhere and our hearts are near to fainting with fear, discouragement, anxiety, and defeat. Just as in Genesis, the word of God in the sacraments and scriptures is still the light he uses to bring the world and its fear, chaos, and anxiety where life is unsupported back into order and alignment where life can thrive. We must brandish Scripture in a steady advance throughout our days. With the Word of God, we can destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians ten five. That's a practice also sometimes called custody of the mind. Science agrees. In Not Your Brain by Jeffrey Schwartz, the latest brain science confirms that the neuroelasticity in the human brain enables the creation and strengthening of new neural pathways when we refocus runaway, habitual, erroneous, anxious thoughts. This rewiring begins with truth, and truth is God's word. God's word should ever be on the tongue. That's why we make the tiny crosses on our foreheads, our lips, and our hearts just before the gospel at Mass. We are saying, may your word, Lord, be ever in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. Throughout this book, whenever you come to a passage of scripture, please pray it. Memorize it in the days to come. Absorb the words of these scriptures and saints. Attempt to glean their full meaning before moving on. In this way, the Bible will take root in our lives and help us become more than conquerors. Romans 8.37 Let's review. Fear is not of God. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but rather of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7 Fear is a matter of spiritual warfare. We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 Fear is an attack on love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He who fears is not perfected in love. 1 John 4:18. I acknowledge that by virtue of my baptism, I am in a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy whether I want to be or not. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5:8. My worst enemy is not Satan, but sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Romans 6.23 Rebellion is the sin of Satan. When I say no to God, I fall into fear like Satan who fell from the peace of heaven through rebellion. Because rebellion is sin, rebellion introduces disorder that causes fear. Satan has no legitimate claim on me. Through the power of Christ, I never have to sin. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are under grace, Romans 6.14. God has given me his word as an offensive weapon in the battle against fear, sin, and temptation. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. In him I am more than a conqueror, Romans 8.37. An Invitation As I experienced the power of the scriptures in overcoming temptation and sin, I became almost overwhelmed with thanksgiving for God's mercy in redeeming fallen man when he did not redeem fallen angels and for the magnitude of the help he has provided for us. Indeed, dear one, we are steeped in spiritual graces and surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that stands by to help us, Hebrews 12, 1, so that the only way not to make it to fearless love is simply not to try. Let's resolve not to live the same year 89 times and call it a life. God prompt this study is about fear there may be a lot in your way right now dear one a lot of fear a lot of pain and a lot of sin but you don't have to keep living with it Jesus made sure of that but what if what you're looking for is not found but made as we saw in the account of angelic creation rebellion sin produces a lack of order a lack of order produces fear and fear devours from the inside Finding and fighting our way from fear to love requires brutal honesty with Christ about our rebellion and chaos. What in your life is in chaos and confusion? Maybe it was your fault. Maybe it was someone else's. But what has been wasted and ruined? What is devouring you? Maybe you want to talk to God about that now. Lord, my heart is so heavy and broken over. I long for your touch in this area. Only you, Lord, can bring order and light into the darkness here. Lord, I sense you are speaking to me about this particular area of my life. I want to be fearless, but I'm being held back by. Lord, I confess that rebellion against you may have caused or contributed to my circumstances here. Lord, I need to know that your love for me is permanent and unconditional even during seasons when my life is not pleasing to you. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may want to journal a prayer response to God, restating and receiving what He is saying to you. Lord, I sense you want me to... Dear one, has God spoken to you through this chapter about some area of rebellion Have you said, no, I will not serve to him someplace, or no, I will not, or just no? Without trying to figure out how, you're going to get from no to yes right now. Spend a few moments, maybe the week two, meditating on the following verse and asking God if there's some area of no he'd like you to work with him on making yes. If you sense or know there are many issues, ask him which is best to begin with and listen for his answer as you meditate on the verse. Pay attention for as long as it takes, maybe weeks, to hear His answer, and ask Him to make Himself clearly understood through prayer, circumstances, other people, and so forth. But right now, let's start by emphasizing each word or phrase in turn until you have emphasized them all like this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1-9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Keep emphasizing each word until you've done them all. In 1 John 1.9 What do you need to do next? If you don't know, ask him and sit quietly for a few minutes. Meditating on that verse. I love the promise of 1 John 1.9 It brings me great hope when I'm trapped in sin of some sort and feel as if I can't find my way out or don't have the strength or the will. Because it doesn't just mean that he will forgive the times we've sinned in a particular way, so we're clean to go out and probably mess up again. It means he will cleanse us of the sin. He will rid my life of the sin habit completely if I trust him to, and if I obey as he does so. What is God saying to you through this passage? As you move forward into the coming week, I invite you to copy this verse and the scriptures in the Let's Review section and tape them up somewhere helpful. You might want to pray them back to God, knowing that the Holy Spirit is your helper in all that pertains to your spiritual house. Be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, be not dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. First Chronicles 28 20. Above all, dear one, do not fear the evil snares of the enemy. In the end, he is powerless where a soul that is very dear to Jesus is concerned. Therefore, be at peace.